Richard II tracks Bolingbroke's rise and Richard's fall. In this episode, we'll look at how Bolingbroke gains political power and where his power falls unexpectedly short. We'll also ask what Richard and Shakespeare find so compelling about the loss of power. Professor Michael Dobson, director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon, guides our discussion. The play's brutal politics contrast with its beautiful style. Shakespeare wrote Richard II during one of the most lyrical periods of his career. When the theatres closed in the 1590s due to an outbreak of plague, he turned to writing narrative poetry. When the theatres reopened, his newly honed poetic talent produced Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Richard II. Shakespeare has become very famous and very highly sought after as a writer of poems. Although Shakespeare had to give up being a playwright to become a poet during the plague outbreak, he's not going to give up being a poet now that he's going back to being a playwright. And the whole play's in first. I mean, even the gardeners speak in this beautiful poetry. The play deliberately rhymes a lot. It makes it sound slightly fairy tale. It's a very sugared pill as a tragedy. We enjoy it as a, as a work of art at the same time as recognising that actually it is a description of a nasty political mess that kills real people. Shakespeare translates the story's political upheavals into a series of rich, elemental images that vary and repeat throughout the entire play, almost like motifs in an orchestral symphony. The opposition of fire and water, red blood staining both green fields and pale faces, the sun overcoming night's darkness and being overcome in turn by envious clouds that dim his glory. Richard loves making an emblem of himself, that fabulous moment where he holds out the crown and then doesn't let go of it when Bolingbroke tries to take it and says, look at us, we're being an image. We're two buckets and this is the well. When Richard tells Bolingbroke, here, cousin, seize the crown, they both hold the crown while Richard muses on its symbolic significance. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that has two buckets, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down unseen and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. The same imagery of ascent and descent reverberates through the play, from Richard's down, down I come, as he descends to negotiate with Bolingbroke at Flint Castle, to Bolingbroke saying, in God's name, I'll ascend the regal throne, to Richard's parting shot at his former followers after he gives Bolingbroke the crown. Robbers are you all that rise thus nimbly by a true king's fall. The play's imagery, that is to say, reflects its plot structure, movement up and down. You get Richard up on the walls, that same vertical uh, imagery and coming down to the same level as Bolingbroke. It's also a play that's full of antithesis, from Richard's night to Bolingbroke's fair day. And the antithesis at the middle of it is Richard and Bolingbroke, those, those two buckets. 
The whole structure of it is an antithesis, and the rhetoric keeps reminding you of that and keeps dramatising that and making it audible. These things are forever being contrasted and balanced against each other, just as these two antagonists are. It's even-handed, but in a way it's a dramatisation of how come the English monarchy lost after a reasonable dynastic period of undisputed kings, how come we got into a position where there was potential genuine argument about who ought to be king that was based on bloodlines and, and on who'd killed who, rather than being based on having any political qualifications for the job. Shakespeare's imagery tells a story, and the story asks a question. Who has the right to power? Is it the person with the legitimate claim to office? The person who'd rule most effectively? Or is it simply the person who's able to secure power? Perhaps, in politics, questions of who should have power inevitably give way to questions about who can. As Richard says to Bolingbroke at Flint Castle, they well deserve to have that know the strongest and surest way to get. Of course, what exactly Bolingbroke is aiming to get, whether it's the lands he has lost or the entire kingdom, is unclear for much of the play. It may be that Bolingbroke realises that the surest way of getting power is never to say that he wants it working out the exact moment at which Bolingbroke has become king is one of the fascinating things about watching this play. Maybe he was always planning that the minute Richard left the kingdom, for whatever reason, he was going to turn his boat round and come straight back out of exile and muster his friends. But it's a productive ambiguity for the play, just as it's a productive ambiguity for Bolingbroke and, and one that he cultivates. Bolingbroke never says he wants the throne until Richard has already given it to him. He insists continually that he comes but for his own. How much we believe him can depend very much on how an individual actor performs the role. But whether and whenever he comes to desire the crown, the appearance of not wanting it proves the best strategy for getting it. Bolingbroke's legitimate claim to his family estate gives the nobles an excuse to join his cause, and once they have all joined, the combined pressure they exert on Richard proves irresistible. His strategy is always never to declare his hand until it's definitely a winning hand. It's, it's treason to say, I want to be king, unless you're already king. So he doesn't even say to his followers, look, we're going to have to take the crown. If, if I don't become king, it's going to be disastrous. What he says is, you know, we're all standing up for the ancient rights of inheritance. I think there's a sense that the whole thing necessarily gets out of hand. Once you try to campaign for redress of grievances to a monarch, you're going to be guilty of treason unless you become the next king. You know, what, once you have got your army together <laughs> and, and confronted the king and said, look, do this or else, sooner or later, he's going to have to kill you unless you kill him. There's no getting around it. There's got to be one regime or the other. It's an all or nothing kind of game. 
Still, there does seem to be one moment in which Richard might conceivably be able to hold on to his position, at least in name. At Flint Castle, Bolingbroke swears faithful service to his majesty if Richard restores his estate. Richard agrees and Bolingbroke's first action when they come face to face is to kneel down and command his followers, show fair duty to his majesty. Bolingbroke's followers so outnumber Richard's that it would be futile for Richard to resist him. But what if Richard didn't resist? What if he simply took Bolingbroke at his word and accepted Bolingbroke's own promise to serve Richard as king? He's the king de jure right to the end of the play, even though Bolingbroke is the king de facto. He still looks like the king. He can still talk like a king. He can still ask people to kneel to him. It looks as though they might be able to do a deal whereby Richard remained as some kind of ceremonial constitutional monarch, but Bolingbroke you know, got his estates back and maybe managed the government. Bolingbroke never says what he wants until he's already got it. He doesn't risk being publicly disappointed. He says, I've only come back to, to reclaim my father's estate. He never says, I'm here to depose Richard and make myself king because this is a national emergency. Richard has already lost in, ter in practical terms, but still might remain king. But Richard doesn't consider any political compromise of this kind. Before Bolingbroke can even respond to Richard's restoring his estate, Richard has already created a new narrative for his future. What must the king do now? Must he be deposed? The king shall be contented. I'll give my gorgeous palace for a hermitage, my subjects for a pair of carved saints, and my large kingdom for a little grave. A little... Little grave, an obscure grave, or I'll be buried in the king's highway where subjects' feet may hourly trample on their sovereign's head. He imagines a new identity for himself as a tragic, sanctified martyr. He avoids any political deals and precipitates his own downfall, perhaps because it's the only way he can maintain some control over his fate and hold on to some kind of identity. He essentially deposes himself when he can see that Bolingbroke has in effect already deposed him. The way in which he retains agency is to make sure that he loses before Bolingbroke has actually won. It's as though the one thing he is free to do is make a complete mess of his own position in this spectacular and theatrical and embarrassing way. So that's what he does. You know, yes, you're going to depose me. I know that's what you want. Come on then, depose me. It was my idea. Richard is clearly still king. The theatre audience can see it. All of Bolingbroke's followers can see it. And it's Richard himself who seems to rush on his own downfall, who seems perversely to want to see what happens if he ceases to be king. He can't imagine what that might be. He knows it'll be fatal. He knows that Bolingbroke can't afford to let him live if he isn't king. But it's as though he wants to be a tragic character. He's already completely taken up with the pathos of his own future story. 
Richard's interest in his own tragic story may be what interested Shakespeare as well. I think what interests him is the idea of a lyrical, tragic character who completely takes charge of their own downfall and in a way deliberately revels in it and profits from it. He's somebody who talks himself magnificently into losing. I mean, this is this fascinating thing about the play. There's a sort of moral problem with tragedy. How is a theatre audience going to still feel good about themselves when they come to see a show about somebody being tortured and killed in front of their eyes? And Shakespeare's solution this time is to imagine a central character who really is very, very good at being a tragic hero, who's very good at, at being tortured and dying very eloquently. It's his fault. He wants to be tragic. This desire for a tragic narrative may accelerate Richard's downfall as a political leader, but it also sets Richard on a pathway of change. By the end of the play, he's a very different man than the one we found exerting his kingly authority in the opening scene. He's nothing but a man. The first major set piece is in the tilt yards, Coventry, when he interrupts the trial by combat between Mowbray and Bolingbroke, and he looks like a tyrant. He looks arbitrary, whimsical, sort of insufferably pleased with himself. This is not at all a sympathetic person. And then gradually, as things get stripped away from Richard and we come closer in, he's much more confiding and he breaks. It's as though he knows that he needs to be broken for his own moral good. In that wonderful scene when he comes back from Ireland and keeps learning, he keeps hearing that another bit of his army has defected and then being cheered up again and saying, well, I'm still king, we can still sort this out. Oh, another bit of the army's de uh, defected. Oh, and then finally going into that great set piece of you know, how kings are all tragic victims, how it's a tragic part. What else could he expect, really? He's mortal. It's this fascinating progress inwards that we get with Richard. He's given the most extraordinary poetic eloquence in order gradually to win us over. And it's paradoxically in moments when that eloquence appears to fail him that he suddenly just tugs at you, where he just breaks down into monosyllables. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. And finally, the last we see of Richard, he is completely alone in a cell and he doesn't know what to call himself now that he doesn't have the title of king. And he's suddenly just somebody who knows he's going to die and who knows all that has been taken away. I wasted time and now doth time waste me. The whole trajectory of this play is for us to get closer and closer to Richard and see him come out the other side of complete despair and complete loss. See what's left of him when he has been stripped of his kingship. He wants to see what there is when you've stripped everything away. There's a kind of curiosity about that lack of identity as well as complete disorientation. You know, well, I can only find out what I am by failing to be king, you know, by having that taken away. So yeah, go ahead, take it away, let's see. 
it's it's a it's a very intriguing journey and it's one that you know many other Shakespearean tragic characters go through and at one level it's just petulant you know if I can't have it all my way I'll smash up the board and I'll smash up myself just to, that'll show you and yet at another level it's oh well maybe there's something beyond this game let's see what it is you know something on the other side even after death let's think about what that might be and the play sort of leads you towards the very edge of itself in this very risky way and, and that's part of the same curiosity that drives audiences to follow him into that cell. Richard's introspection and eloquence make him a powerfully compelling tragic figure. And paradoxically, the tragedy of his loss of political power actually clarifies the kind of political power that he does have and that Bolingbroke does not. Richard has the power of performance, of ceremony, spectacle and language. He is able to look and sound like a king, most of all perhaps when facing Bolingbroke's rebellious army. We are amazed, and thus long have we stood to watch the fearful bending of thy knee, because we thought ourself thy lawful king. And if we be, how dare thy joints forget to pay their awful duty to our presence? If we be not, show us the hand of God that hath dismissed us from our stewardship, for well we know no hand of blood and bone can gripe the sacred handle of our sceptre. He is, if you like, the king who is best at performing the role of being the body politic, the idea of the king. He's not great while he's around and you're relying on his political nows to get things done. But once he's dead, he is so clearly the real king, the one who could speak all that royal language and wear all those royal clothes, that the, his successor is bound to look like a fake. In the deposition scene, Richard's sort of in-person resignation letter is so spectacular that who's going to take over after him? You can barely remember. You know, it's it's you know, he's so good at upstaging Bolingbroke, even while Bolingbroke is so good at quietly and unspectacularly putting together the coalition he needs to make himself king, a job which he really is not going to enjoy. There's going to be more rebellions. And suddenly, now that we don't have a king who is going all out for, I am the Lord's anointed, I am the true success, you know, he's undermined his own power as at the same moment he's un undermined Richard's, as, as he's already you know, coming to realise. In one sense, Bolingbroke and Richard's fortunes are opposed. But in another sense, they're parallel. Richard suffered a fall from kingship, and it's when Bolingbroke becomes king himself that his own political fortunes begin to decline. Not only do Richard's allies plot against him, but Richard predicts, astutely, that Bolingbroke's own allies will soon turn on him as well. It's a beautifully symmetrical play. There's one character who goes up and the other character who comes down, though the one who comes up, Bolingbroke, finds when he's got to the top that he's in just as bad a position as his predecessor was, except without the reputation for being at least legitimate. And from looking like everybody's friend and somebody standing up for the equality of status between all the old families, he becomes more and more isolated. He's going to have to 
distance himself from more and more of the people we see around him when he's planning his rebellion. You know, it's a sad story for Bolingbroke. He too has political allies who, who are already beginning to think he's betrayed them and who won't be governed by him because, you know, he's just one of us. Whereas at least Richard definitely wasn't just one of us. When a king dies, the mantle doesn't necessarily fall on the successor. And if there isn't apparently a true successor, then there's going to be a ghost. Richard is the ideal ghost king. There were rumours that Richard was still alive for about the next hundred years because he had such a great image that you couldn't possibly just kill that off just by killing the real body underneath it. And indeed, for the next 200 years, Richard's story was retold and studied and even marshaled as a new source of political power, a potential way of undermining Queen Elizabeth I, who reigned when this play was written and who was openly compared to Richard. Lots of histories of Richard II were being written at the time because Elizabeth, she didn't have an heir like Richard and she governed through favourites. And she did not choose all her advisers from the old nobility. To some extent, the old nobility were already very much out of the picture. And that's a very, you know, that, that's something that the old aristocracy are very anxious about. So that is part of the backdrop to the play, the political tensions that are around in, in Shakespeare's London. There'd been very successful propaganda against Elizabeth in the 1580s, alleging that the whole realm was being corruptly run by the Earl of Leicester, her favourite. At the time of this play, her favourite is Essex. And he, like Bolingbroke, raises a little rebellion against Elizabeth, a very unsuccessful attempted coup. But he seems to have thought that reminding everybody about Richard II yet again would be a good idea. And we know there were performances of Richard II just before his attempted coup. And Elizabeth I is quoted as saying, you know, I am Richard II. No, you not that. She didn't like being compared to Richard II. Essex and Elizabeth seem to have seen a seditious message in the play as encouraging rebellion against a monarch. The play does undermine the view that monarchs are ordained and made invulnerable by God. No holy power prevents Richard's overthrow. But the play isn't so clear about whether Richard's overthrow is actually a good thing. The play, obviously, is wonderfully ambiguous about what you should do about an unpopular monarch who is ruling through favourites. You know, to some extent, it's a play that shows that Richard is a disaster and that the England really needed Bolingbroke. To some extent, it's a play that shows that whatever you do, you shouldn't depose a legitimate monarch because you'll produce a civil war. That's one of the glorious, both deeply engaged and deeply evasive things that, that Shakespearean drama does. It brings people on stage and works through hypotheses and dialogues that articulate all sorts of sides of a problem. So even though the outcome of the play is what it is, you're put in a position to talk about how else it might have turned out and what ought to happen and what the real issues are and what we can learn from it. Bolingbroke ends the play with his own ambiguous sentiments. When Richard's killer presents him with Richard's body, he declares, Though I did wish him dead, I hate the murderer, love him murdered. Does he love the murdered man 
Or does he actually love the fact that Richard has been murdered? Like the question of how far he intended to be king, or whether Richard should have stayed king, it's a question the play asks us to answer. In our next episode, we'll hear how Richard confronts losing his power, and how he reasserts that power in the very act of losing it.